giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with us today is Karen Rubin, the Chief Revenue Officer at Owl Labs. Karen, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Owl Labs, uh, I assume that's some sort of scientific lab um, for birds. Is that correct? <laughs> that might be more fun because having <laughs> birds around would be really cool. But no, um, we create a 360 degree video conferencing camera. So we're a hardware company here in Boston. Uh, and our product, The Meeting Owl, sits in the middle of your conference room table and makes it so that your remote attendees of a meeting can see everybody in the room, see their faces, understand their expressions, and really feel like they're a part of a meeting, as opposed to feeling like they might be a fly sitting on the wall or like they're watching a really bad TV show of a meeting. And how long has Owl Labs been around? Uh, what, what stage are we talking here? So Owl Labs has probably been around for four and a half years. I've been there for three years and we launched our first product two and a half years ago. We're a baby. You're a baby. We're a baby owl. <laughs> Where did the idea actually come from? And maybe you can tell me a little bit about the founders, what, yeah. what that story is. So the idea came from Mark Schnittman, who is our CTO. He had been a roboticist at iRobot. So he worked on the Roomba and helping the Roomba drive around your house and clean up all the garbage. Then he went to work in another company, and he was a remote employee. But he was the senior engineer. He was supposed to be leading the team. He was supposed to be really helping out all the other engineers. And that worked until they came to collaborative meetings when they were using a laptop and the video camera on the laptop in order to show the room. And he just really couldn't be a part of it. He couldn't engage. And then one day, someone shifted the laptop and started pointing it at the person talking. And he had the light bulb moment. And he thought, I could do this with robotics. I could actually make a robot that does this for you so a human doesn't have to. And that's where the idea was born. He asked uh, Max, his co-founder, who was at a robot with him, to come join him. And they started the company. Um, they joined an incubator out on the West Coast called Playground that specializes in hardware. Uh, and they went out there and like lived on the floor of an apartment together while they got the, the first version of it built. Classic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, very classic startup. And then I joined right as they were getting the first owls off the assembly line to figure out how to sell it and how to bring it to market. And so that's the, the part I got to do, which was a lot of fun because they were in complete stealth mode until that part. So was it the three of you? What number nope. employee were you? Oh, I was lucky number 13. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. At that point, there were a lot of engineers. So I was one of the first non-engineering people on the team. And he didn't just put the laptop on top of a Roomba? <laughs> no, but that would be cool. To <laughs> accomplish that same goal? No, definitely not. But yes, in theory, like that's the way it works. And it thinks it doesn't have any moving parts. It's all the software, which is really neat. But it does have a lot of intelligence to figure out where in the room to look. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that intelligence, like yeah. get into some of the fun technical stuff? So if you think about the the meeting owl, it's a 360 camera. And, and it I, actually looks like an owl. It does, Not in like a cheesy way, but in like a cool designy <laughs> way, it looks like an owl. It has eyes. Um, but the camera lens is actually a wide fisheye lens that instead of being focused through the center of the lens is focused around the edges. So it points up at the ceiling and then the edges give you a full 360 degree view of the room. So there are no like moving parts. There's nothing inside spinning around. There's no stitching between cameras. It's a single lens. And then there's this intelligence that's on the owl itself, the, the computer inside, that takes everything it's hearing and everything it's seeing, and it identifies who in the room is talking. And it will show you up to three participants at a time and gives you a nice front view of them so you can understand kind of what their facial expressions are and how they're feeling at a much closer range than you know a camera pointed on the wall under the TV at the end of the room. And so that's using, we can't tell the whole secret sauce, sure, but sure. it does audio and video information together to figure out where to look. And so 
Did the name Owl come before the hardware was put together, or did they build something and say, hey, that looks like an owl? No, it, Owl <laughs> came first, because an owl can turn its head 360 degrees, and so it can look and see in all directions. And so it's because of what the product does, where the owl came from, and then the um, industrial designer was like, we could make it look like an owl. And it was a hugely like, oh my God, should we do this? Because yeah. giving it eyes was, and it, people love it. It hoots. I Yeah. <laughs> you've, <When> you, <laughs> you've obviously had a lot of fun with like the product development because it hoots when you like are like onboarding, turning it on, and there's like a playful aspect. Exactly. And you don't normally expect that from your video conferencing hardware. Um, that's not a normal thing. And so finding the right balance between cheesy owl and, you know, just enough owl and just enough <laughs> playfulness that people get really engaged with it. Mm-hmm. The fun story about the hoot is that came about because one of our engineers was at home late one night and he's like, what if I made it hoot? And so the hoot is actually Peter, our engineer, hooting into a microphone in his bedroom and then like figuring out how to put it on the owl so it boots. And we all loved it. And the crazy thing is our customers are constantly saying, can you make it hoot more? Like, we just want <laughs> this thing to hoot at us like at the beginning of the meeting at the end of the meeting can i make it hoot on command turn into one of those like social robots too (laughs) that's like giving advice about the meeting exactly okay i think we've talked enough about that topic yeah you've interrupted you've gone on too long you're dominating hoot hoot yeah exactly (laughs) shut it down exactly no we don't do that but we could (laughs) we have the hoot so you mentioned like other conferencing solutions what does the market or like other offerings look like when you were starting out? Has that changed mm-hmm. over the last few years? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the market is there's the low end solutions, which you've seen before, like standard webcam. It's under hundred, hundred and fifty dollars, matched with you know some kind of mic speaker solution that goes in the center of the table. Those cameras are generally put at the end of the room, on top of the TV, below the TV, and then they're pointing down the table. And so I've heard that described as it's like I'm a fly on the wall or like I'm watching a TV show of meaning, Mm. a bad TV show. And the mentality around video conferencing hardware is really stuck in that mode, this idea of a video camera placed at one far end of the room that shows the room. Before the owl came onto the market, there was one other 360-degree solution on the market, but it cost about $6,000. And it involved a massive computer mounted under the desk with the camera on top of it in order to do any of the processing. So there weren't a lot of those in market. Mm -hmm. The owl brings it all with a price of $7.99 and integrates that audio and video into one package. So uh, it's very easy for them to use. And then it also gives a better experience. So it's the difference between kind of something mounted on the wall the far end of the room that only costs, you know, $200 Mm -hmm. um, versus the other far end of the market is like a much more expensive solution. 6,000 is even the low end of that market. You can get to $30,000 room solutions. Right. I was going to say like probably a handful of times in my life I've been in these like, you know, the executive customer room that are decked out for remote meetings. And you're talking like maybe like Fortune 500, yeah. Fortune 100 companies. 30,000, 50,000, you know, $100,000 like, to the build the room <laughs> that has the cameras everywhere, the mics everywhere, and right. you're still struggling to and <laughs> log in. We want to bring a solution to customers that gives everybody that better meeting experience because it shouldn't only be those executives that can get it. Mark, our CTO and founder, has just a very strong passion about kind of democratizing that great experience for all size of companies. So it's kind of a universal business problem. Are there any like profiles of customers or it's like people who have meetings? 
this, this is like the question the investors ask me all the time. <laughs> Who is your customer? Yeah. And it's a really interesting this is one. my marketing hat, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, how do you? <laughs> There's a bunch of ways to slice and dice this. Um, within an organization, take organization of any size. Um, you can focus on the person who's in the meeting having the bad meeting experience. They could be remote or they could be the person running the meeting. You could also choose to focus on the IT person that's outfitting those conference rooms. Early on, we chose to focus on the people that understood the experience because the benefit of the owl was going to be most significant to them. So we've tailored our marketing and our product towards team leads, people running meetings, remote employees, those folks that understand the pain of a bad meeting. We will also have to work regularly with IT managers and help them understand the benefit of the owl and think about that more. But really, we focused on folks in the room. From a company perspective, it is, you're right, it's a universal problem at companies of all sizes and shapes and industries. Um, I was surprised early on at the amount of interest from the educational community, hmm. EDUs and universities, um, distance learning. There's a huge interest in video conferencing that's affordable and really great there. And some of our... For like remote teaching? It's both for remote teaching and for all of the meetings that happen in order to make a university run. Oh. Interviews for grad students and employee hiring, mm -hmm. they're using video Video conferencing extensively and really interested in great solutions that are inexpensive. They're not going to put a $30,000 or $50,000 conference solution in every room. And so they've been trying to find the balance there. And that was probably the biggest surprise was how much the educational community has enjoyed the OWL and latched onto it. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about other customers who are, are using it? Maybe like other surprising use cases or the really edge yep. cases that are out there? So the biggest edge case, I'll tell you, is still in education, but it's a fun story. So the owl sits at the center of your conference room table and it looks like an owl. And as soon as we launched it, we started getting people asking us, can you hang it upside down? Can you mount it from the ceiling? I want to see the whole room, but from above. And our answer for the first, you know, seven or eight months was no, it doesn't work that way. The video wouldn't work because of these things. This is not how it's made. Be like upside down, right? Exactly. And then I actually had had like dental surgery uh, and I had a customer call and my I was a chipmunk. Like I had these monster cheeks, but like I had to do the customer call. They had said they'd, they'd do it with me and I dial in and I noticed that the loading screen is upside down and I was like, wait, and then the camera loads in and they've got their owl upside down. And <laughs> I was literally shocked. I couldn't believe someone had figured this out. And so then I had to start taking pictures of this experience with yeah. me looking like a chipmunk <laughs> and these customers explaining to me how they did it. And that's the team over at Chadron State College. It's in the Midwest. And they figured out that they could mount it upside down and that their video conferencing platform could alternate the camera feed and flip it for them. And they're using it in classrooms, in mm -hmm. uh, lecture hall style classrooms for 30 students to mount sort of at the front of the room so the remote participants can see everyone in the class as well as the teacher. And that one, the bat owl, uh, now <laughs> that's what we call it, or the bat. We don't sell that. That's something people rig up on their own in order to do. Um, we have a little Slack community of our customers. It's one of their favorite things to talk oh about gosh. and theorize on. It's also being used right now by a couple of game design companies. And they uh, role play their games and show the games they're designing uh, live. And so video they have, games or like uh, board games, yeah. tabletop games. They have an owl mounted over the table where they gather around to play these games so that everybody can see what they're doing, which I think is just like a fascinatingly interesting use yeah. case that I never would have thought of having been a in-office meeting person my whole career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You mentioned kind of getting buy-in from IT. Mm. The OWL is like technically IoT, right? It is. This yeah. is Internet of Things. But it doesn't seem like y'all talk about it that way much. 
Um, we do to some extent, and it's where we are developing the product. It's more than just hardware. It has a connection to the internet at all times, which means it can do so much more than just provide the video and the audio to your conference platform. And so uh, we recently launched the Meeting All Pro, the second generation of the product, and also announced that it's enabled for the smart conference room, which is really where we're going to go with leveraging that IoT connection and start to build features and values on top of the OWL, starting with basic things like room management, room monitoring for IT, something so they can understand how their OWLs are doing, are they online, are they having problems, Mm. but can extend into a lot of different directions as we go from there to make use of that IoT connection and really expand on the product and deliver more values to our customers who have owls in their conference rooms. Interesting. And so you mentioned there's like the hardware component. There's also a a software side of things. But at least for right now, you you don't have your own sort of online conferencing software. No. One of the interesting things is 80% of companies use more than one video conferencing solution. Uh, And so... Yeah, we do. Now that you say that. Yeah. I mean, you might have, you know, Zoom rooms in some places, but a team that loves to just use Slack for those quick hit videos. You have third parties that you have to talk to who are using something different. And so giving people the flexibility to use the video conferencing platform of choice and be able to switch between video conferencing platforms is a core belief. So we do not build our own conferencing platform. We're agnostic. Uh, You can use us with all the major providers um, and many of the minor ones. There's a lot of them out there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we do our best to really meet the needs of the customers at that point and just give them a solution that works with what they want to do. Do you have formal partnerships with any of those companies? Um, Not at this point, no. We're part of the next phase of growth, but we just work well with all of the the big ones. (laughs) Cool. Uh, So you mentioned when you started, you were head of growth or VP of growth? VP of growth, yeah. And recently have made the move to Chief Revenue Officer. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'd love to talk a little bit about growth as well as the CRO position. Um, So let's start with growth. Like, what is growth? It seems there are many definitions and it can depend on company, industry, you name it. It is. It's one of those titles that could mean anything. At OWL, the reason I actually pitched for that role at the beginning was because one of the core elements of our product that I thought was really interesting was its natural virality. So you have meetings with other people and they see the owl and they ask in every time, how did you make Zoom do that? Or how did you make Google Hangouts do that? And that leads to really interesting sales dynamics. And so where I wanted to focus my energy at the company was not just figuring out how to bring it to market, but then figuring out how to leverage that virality to increase sales, but then also uh, leverage the product to sell more within an organization. So that happens both externally and internally. And so I really wanted to focus my energies on the customers and on getting the customers to adopt the OWL at large volume and on getting them really excited about it. I've spent my entire career as a product manager um, building software products at companies like HubSpot and Quantopian. So this was a pretty big shift for me into the marketing and sales side of things and launching a product. I had done lots of launches, but doing them from the perspective of actually owning the sales number and the sales channel and the marketing aspect of it, the brand building that had to happen early on, the content creation, all of those things. It was a less of an exciting thing for me. And I had people in mind that I wanted to come join to do that. So shortly after I became the VP of growth, we hired Rebecca Corliss to be our VP of marketing. And she and I worked side by side to make it happen for the first year and a half, just kind of going back and forth and doing everything that needed to be done. And so it was a bit of a strategic decision to want to bring someone in to do those other elements of marketing but also being able to really focus on kind of the virality, the interesting customer strength and figure out how to get additional growth beyond kind of traditional marketing tactics. And so growth owned the sales numbers. 
Growth and marketing own them together. Mm-hmm. The way we actually divided it early on was marketing owns the first sale of an owl into an organization, and I was responsible for subsequent sales into that organization and then referrals. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a little bit different because our company is B2B e-commerce. And this is a weird category of yeah. sales. Um, we sell into businesses, but they come to our website and they click to buy without talking to a person. They buy on Amazon. We do have an inside sales team that then's working with customers and working with new companies. But really, the price point of $7.99 is very approachable for most business buyers. And so we're not doing a huge amount of lead generation to then uh, drive a sales team to call people and convert those sales as you typically see in a lot of B2B companies. So it's one of the most interesting elements of this company is figuring out how to B2B e-commerce actually works and what that looks like. It definitely feels also like right idea, right time as far as like the technologies being in, in a good place, uh, both like what you're building and what you're integrating with mm-hmm. and this huge cultural shift towards flexible work right. and remote work. Are people very actively seeking out solutions like this? They definitely are. And I think it's being driven by the folks in the meetings. And we see it when anyone has a hybrid team. We use the term hybrid to to say a team that has folks in an office and some remote and multiple offices that they're connecting. So I was just discussing with one of your colleagues that you have like six offices mm-hmm. around the world. You don't have a ton of individual remote workers, but those six offices need to connect really effectively mm-hmm. because you still have people in distributed locations. That's That's super common, as is our situation where we have 60% of our employees work out of our office in Somerville, and the other 40% are distributed around the country. Mm -hmm. And they're all, we don't have any other offices, but we have individuals in places. Both of those teams need better communication than what is being offered today and better solutions in conference rooms. And so, yeah, I think you're right. There is a lot of right time, right place, as a lot more people are looking to work remotely. A lot of the millennial workforce is demanding the flexibility and really driving companies to embrace it. And so at all levels, organizations are having to think about it. So I think, you know, at this point, I have to come out as a, an owl fangirl. <laughs> we now have one in our Boston studio. Oh, that's great. That Well, that is my girlfriend's. <laughs> so also, full transparency, my girlfriend works at Owl, but I didn't become an owl fangirl through her. It was the other way around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a great, actually. We were looking to hire someone to help out in our operations team doing fulfillment, and Lindsay reached out to me. Yeah, so now Caitlin's doing uh, business ops on your team. She is, yeah. <laughs> the business ops team is really interesting because it does B2B traditional sales operations like you know managing the CRM, managing the systems that our team uses, and then we have real physical products. And again, this is my first time working at a company with real physical products, getting them to all the places they need to be so people can buy them and take care of them and do that is a huge job. And Caitlin works on that team, which is really awesome. Yeah, and I think she's actually already looking at that job listing and then I saw you or someone else tweet about it and I was like hold on (laughs) let let me slide into Karen's DMs here because this is a really cool company and I uh, geeked out about the opportunity for her Um, so yeah so she got an owl from joining the team and uh, I, I brought it in here and we've been we use it for our stand ups yeah every morning kind of wheel it out into the middle of the the room and every day we have at least three people working from home and we have one fully remote person who's appreciated it I know and we drag it out to for our like big quarterly meetings so that he can be better engaged yeah better engaged better able to contribute 
It was actually stand-ups. That was the reason I went to work at Owl Labs. Yeah. I was VP of product at a company called Quantopian here in Boston. Uh, most of the engineers I was working with were here locally, but someone or multiple people were always at home when we did stand-up. And uh, one of the investors brought Owl to me, and they were looking for someone to do the business side of things. And my response was, I need this product. Can I get in the beta? Can I have the product now? Like, I want the product. And he told me to go away. Um, <laughs> but then he told me what he actually needed, which was a person to help bring the product to market. And I was like, you know what? Like, I need this product to exist. I have to go put my own energy into it because I want it so badly. So it was very much like from that same perspective. And you're the second story I've heard this week of a coworker whose spouse stole their owl to go into work and start using it at work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I tried it from home and it ended up giving a 360 view of my house. Yeah, but, that's not the use like, case. <laughs> yeah, we need we need this for our meetings. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I snuck it in. That was one of the early Owl Lab stories. Is before the product launched, we were in stealth mode, and we wanted to see if this concept of virality actually worked. If you dialed into a meeting and you had this completely different 360 experience, would people comment on it? Would they notice it? How would that work? So I went to Craigslist and I recruited seven people that were complete strangers that we didn't know, that didn't know who we were, to just come and do an interview about remote work and video conferencing. And the day those interviews were all scheduled, having I mean, you know, scheduling seven interviews with complete strangers takes a lot of effort, a lot of coordination. I had seven interviews scheduled and a blizzard came. And so we were supposed to be doing this in our conference. We had a conference room all set up. We had a plan for it. And then we we're getting two feet of snow. And so I mm -hmm. made Rebecca and Max, the co-founder, come to my house in the blizzard to get snowed in with us so that we could do these interviews from my office at our house. And that then meant all of a sudden my office was going to be shown in 360 degrees. And my office is like a smorgasbord of like junk from previous jobs, <laughs> <laughs> drawings from my kids, pictures of my family, my husband's <laughs> desk. Yeah. <laughs> I was up there like rage cleaning at that morning, trying to get everything out so it would look like we were semi-professional organization <laughs> doing meetings from home. It worked out all right. And and neither of my coworkers got snowed in, but Max did hike two miles through like a blizzard that evening to get home. He was pretty committed Epic. to not spending the night. <laughs> that actually reminds me, I have another, I'm really coming out as like a hardcore owl fan. Another funny story is actually when I was interviewing at ThoughtBot, for like my more kind of like in-depth interview where we try to like work alongside each other to, to see how it would work. I was gonna lead a marketing positioning exercise and half the team was going to be remote from those other mm -hmm. six studios that you mentioned. And I actually emailed Chad and I was like, by any chance, do you have an owl? That's uh, great. <laughs> this is, it's this really cool thing that I've heard of. Um, that we didn't have it at the time, <laughs> but yeah, it's also part of my, my ThoughtBot journey. That's great. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'd actually love to talk a little bit more about this idea of the supply chain and how that fits in, especially at an early stage startup with, you know, you only have so many dollars, mm -hmm. um, so much time. Like, what does this look like as far as, you know, you're designing it over here, then where does it get built? Then where does it get shipped? Like yeah. a ton of complexity. There is a ton of complexity. And because when you build hardware at a factory, you pay for that hardware 30 days after it leaves the factory, regardless of whether or not you've sold it. And so as you're balancing all of the accounting around this, there's a huge juggling that has to happen. This is one of the reasons why hardware startups are so hard to start, Yeah, um, is because the amount of capital you have to invest upfront to develop 
the hardware. And then to get the first inventory going while you're still ramping sales is extreme. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to like balance all those things and have enough capital to invest to grow the product to begin with. Um, we constantly trying to figure out exactly how many owls we need to build over the next few months, working between the factory, working between our manufacturing team, our fulfillment team, and our sales team, making projections of products you've never sold before to figure out how many of them should you build? What kind of capital do you want to outlay? What do you think the sales are going to look like? And then as with anything, you build it. And sometimes it's not perfect on the first try. And so then you have to go back and figure out how to fix it and iterate on it and improve that process, which then can mean you don't have inventory for the sales team. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I have said before that having spent 15 years building software and then going to a hardware company, I think it's a little bit like business in three dimension Mm. because there's this suddenly different element that just makes it hugely complex to figure out. To you can't just sure roll you it back uh, and reship. Back. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just spin up more servers to do it. You have to actually like get the hardware built. And you can run into a situation where you think you're going to have enough inventory, and then it gets stuck in customs, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got all your owls sitting somewhere, and you cannot sell them to ship them to anybody because they're stuck somewhere, and you can't get them out. I heard of a different hardware company that had a whole shipment of product like fell off a boat into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> like, quote unquote, fell off the boat or no, actually fell off? I think it actually fell off the boat, but this is one of those like mythical stories. So like I wasn't Tony there Soprano for that. grabbed it. <laughs> exactly. And so you run into these just like you have actual physical inventory you have to deal with, and there's a lot of complexities around that. So, yeah, add all that complexity to orchestrating a product launch. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> um, it's been so this I've done it twice now because yeah. um, we launched the first product two years ago and we just launched the pro our generation two. And it's been interesting both times. Um, the first time we launched and had that wonderful experience of running out of inventory within like, a week or two. And then we had to kind of make do for a large period selling into backlog, which as a marketer, as a salesperson, you're mm. selling vaporware and yeah. convincing people to buy it when we didn't have anything to ship them. And what we did was we leaned into exceptional customer delight moments. And so there's a group of probably 200 customers there in that first window that we started sending them cupcakes randomly and t-shirts and like these random moments of delight to just be like, we're sorry you still don't have your owl. It's coming, we promise. That's a hot tip. (laughs) It was. It worked really well. It was not inexpensive, but it built just incredibly delighted early customers that were really happy with what we did. This time around, there's been a lot of just balancing and trying to figure out how many do we build, how many are going to sell, and understanding the dynamic as you bring two products to market for the first time ever. And so thinking about how do you leverage different sales channels, how do you leverage an increasingly complex system to be able to do that, and then managing all the systems on the back end that have to go from one to two. Right? That is an intense moment in anything mm. you do. It from going from one to two is one of the hardest differences because everything's optimized around one product. And now we need it to support two, and we have to think about what that means. So the product launch product from a go-to-market perspective has been a you know six-month endeavor that we've been working wow. to make sure things went smoothly for our business and our customers in order to bring this second product to market. And what do you think makes a product launch successful? Mm. That's a very good question. I mean, the easy answer is sales. Mm-hmm. But the, I think a much more nuanced approach to looking at that like is... Like a burst in sales? 
Yeah, I would. You know, it's great if you launch a product and you see a burst in sales because of increased attention, increased awareness, increased excitement among your customer base, and then a leveling off at some higher level. And, and that's where it, get, it gets more nuanced. You want sales, but you also want brand awareness to grow. You want customer delight to grow. You want all of the elements of your marketing engine and your sales engine to lift from bringing another product to market because presumably, and we're getting theoretically here, presumably you're bringing a product to market to solve a broader need. And so it should be able to appeal to a broader group of people mm-hmm. and a broader group of customers. And what you're trying to do is rally all of your energy together in order to, to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen a product launch that ended up proving there wasn't a need? Yeah. Um, we've had products that we killed. So I was employee number 30 at HubSpot. I was started there in 2008, and I was an early product manager there. This was back when HubSpot was like a blog, an SEO tool, and like a CMS. We didn't really have that much more than that. And so my job was in a link grader, right? You got to grade the oh, links coming yeah, to your nice. website for early SEO. My was that job, before Website Grader? I started before Website Grader, but it was shortly thereafter that Website Grader and Twitter Grader and all the graders came out. <laughs> but my job there was to kind of build first versions of products and deliver them in very short time. So we had three to six months to build and deliver and build and deliver and build mm-hmm. and deliver. And we were working with customers, we were working with beta customers, and we definitely delivered features that then nobody ever used. It was not entire products. It was typically more features and trying to then figure them out. There was one and I'm going to forget the name of it, but the concept was not everyone can blog. Blogging is hard. Creating content is tough. So what if we gave people a way to create like a collection of links that they find really interesting and their customers would find really interesting, a community around that, Mm -hmm. um, and they could post links that were related to their industry, their business, whatever, and people could upvote them and downvote them. And we launched that, and I think a year after it launched, there were 13 customers using it or something. And killing it was really hard because there were a lot of people that were incredibly passionate about it. So definitely have seen failed products, uh, and pulling them is always really hard because when you build something, it's your baby. Yeah, yeah. So how long were you at HubSpot? I was there for five years. And in product management the whole time? Uh, Yeah. At one point, towards the end, I shifted and became a product manager for the marketing team. And so instead of focusing on building products for our customers, I was building products for the marketing organization. And I had a team of engineers, um, and we were focusing on kind of growth within the marketing org at HubSpot. But yes, product and building the whole time. And so you started with 30 people. Yeah. And it was well, about 800 when I left. Holy smokes. It was a, it was a journey for sure. Yeah, what do you remember like any major inflection points during your time there where it was just like holy crap, this yeah. just became a whole different company. So whole many. different ballpark. I mean, so many. One of the big ones in early days HubSpot was it was 2008, and at the end of that year, the market tanked. It completely crashed. And I was working at a startup, and it was my first startup. I'd been working at older companies down in New York prior to that, but there was that moment where we were like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? How are we going to manage this? And really, the team at HubSpot rallied around the idea that, okay, the market's collapsing. Everybody's marketing budgets are going to get smaller, so they need to embrace inbound even more. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw probably a year after that, we did start to see a spike in churn, our customers canceling. And the the entire company had to rally around how do we build products that keep customers around for longer? How do we sell to customers that are going to stay around for longer? How do we support customers so that they understand what they're doing and why they need to embrace inbound marketing? And that was absolutely inflection point for the company. It changed the business. And mm-hmm. 
Was that churn related to the market? I'm not sure, the downturn of the market. But in my mind, I've always sort of pulled those two things together was we had this downturn in the market, we rallied through it. Things still started to not go well for the company. And then it was about organizing, like, what are we going to do to change this across all fronts in the organization and tying it together to really get through that period? Were there any major sort of business insights that you saw at HubSpot that you've taken with you? I mean, a ton. One that just came up recently, uh, I was at Inbound, HubSpot's big conference, and I was speaking there about a lot of these early product launches and, and what it means to launch a product and how to think about doing that. And at the time when I was at HubSpot, you know, it felt like, we would launch a product, we would get one round of iteration on it, and then the team and I would be yanked onto another product to do it. And I fought every one of those transitions, every single one. And in hindsight, as I'm looking at this, what HubSpot was trying to do was get breadth to be a full marketing solution. And it was really critically important that we get a stake in the ground for every one of these things. And it didn't have to be the best stake. It didn't have to go all the way as deep as it should go. And looking back, those were the right decisions. At the time, as a 25-year-old product manager, 26-year-old product manager, I was looking at this, hating the fact that we couldn't make these products better at that time. And I had a conversation with Brian Halligan, the CEO of HubSpot, at the conference. And I told him, I was like, I look back and I fought you on every one of those decisions. I fought him tooth and nail. And yet, in hindsight, I can understand that a lot more of these were better decisions than the right decisions for the business at the time. Is that like when you have your own children? (laughs) (laughs) Those are totally different battles. (laughs) (laughs) those are ones like put your shoes on faster it's time to go to school (laughs) so it was fun to reflect on that experience in my life which was so intense I mean HubSpot was a really intense company it still is an intense company but at that time when we were fighting for survival you make a lot of decisions and you don't know if they're the right decisions and you just go with your best gut and your best data and you do what you can and I think now looking back at that with years of experience at other companies you can start to see and pull out the real learnings from there, where at the time it was a lot of reaction. It's amazing how much you learn as you get older, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how that works. I'm older and wiser, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I noticed at OWL, there's actually really strong uh, female leadership. And I'd love to learn about this. Is this intentional? Has it happened organically? Is it something you all talk about? We do talk about it. We talk about diversity across the company a lot. It is a passion for me, without a doubt, that really started at Quantopian, actually. I was there as a VP of product. We had another VP on the senior leadership team, a woman named Jess, who is fabulous. And we were working in hedge funds and technology, which is two industries that have you know woefully mm-hmm. lacking in, in women. And we worked really hard to hire women engineers. And through that process, I got to see some of the things that went to being able to hire women into an organization that was really, really male-dominated in an industry that was really male-dominated. And coming to OWL Labs, where I've gotten to be a part of building a team from scratch for the first time on the sales and marketing side, it, it was me, and then it was me and Rebecca, and then we've built to now be you know 25 or 30 people. Uh, we have hired a lot of women. We have made an effort to really hire minorities into the team as well, and we are focused on continuing to do that across the entire organization. And so taking the lessons from what worked at Quantopian and applying them here, it's really easy. And I will say the learning from this is it's really easy to hire people that look like you. 
And that's mm-hmm. look like you philosophically, look like you experience-wise, look like you in terms of, you know, physicality as well. Uh, as, you know, a woman in tech, it's pretty easy for me to talk to other women in tech and convince them to come join the team. Where I have to stretch is to hire people that are different than me. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really interesting experience to bring lots of women together on this team and have a ton of women leadership. And then also realize we need diversity in other ways. Right. We have a sales team that's 80% women. I actually need more men on my sales team now, which have you ever met a chief revenue <laughs> officer saying they don't have enough men on their sales team? Because That's a good problem. <laughs> it's a great problem. But at the same time, diversity of thought and experience is so important to building and bringing together a team that's going to work well together and have the best ideas. And so, yeah, we have a ton of women and we're working on kind of all of the other aspects of building a truly diverse team across all elements. Can you talk a little bit about maybe any approaches mm-hmm. or tips you have for others And I say this also knowing that like the biggest tip is like it's hard. You have to put in the work and you have to go out and you know, meet these people. Yep. But anything else? I do. I have two key tips that I have taken away. The first one was a lesson we learned at Quantopian where when we were interviewing female engineers, we had to have women in the room for those interviews in order to convince them to join us. And so it wasn't just about us determining were they great at what they did, were they the right member for our team. We also had to sell that this was a company where women were respected and valued and were not going to have a problem. And once we put Jess and myself in all of those interviews, it was pretty pretty easy to identify people and then hire them into the organization. And so taking that and applying that to other kinds of minorities as well so people can see themselves on the Mm -hmm. other side of the table and know that there's someone here who is like me. So I'm not tokenism, like all of those elements and bringing other people into those interview processes, even if they're not necessarily in the same role, in the same function, even on the same team. You Mm -hmm. have to be willing to kind of work across boundaries to do that. The second thing is you as a leader, you have to be really crucially aware of your bias and the biases that you bring to the table. So I have learned, I mean, this should be obvious when I say it, it's incredibly easy for me to hire women. When I look towards other types of people to hire, I have to take a step back and I have to go into the conversation knowing my own biases that I'm bringing to the table and where just our personalities might be different, where our experiences might be different, and then understand where that's a problem versus where that's a benefit. And I have sat in interviews with people where I realized pretty quickly, whoa, we are very different people. We come from very different backgrounds. And I have to listen really carefully to the words you're saying and not make judgments or draw conclusions based on my experiences. Mm-hmm. And some of the best additions to our team were people where I had to like recognize you're very different from me. And that means I have to listen twice as hard and be twice as aware of my own biases that I bring to this conversation. Yeah, that really resonates with me. I'm going through a bias training we have right now. And I think something that's really stuck with me is that fact of, you know, recognizing when you're speaking to someone you may have biases against because they don't look like you or have a different background. And then, you know, here are different categories of things that you might be having a bias against, putting in that thoughtfulness and also labeling, you know, in your mind, Mm -hmm. labeling things away as like, you know, let's check myself on on this specific thing. And you if you're unaware of your own biases, you can't even begin to fix this stuff. And so definitely think for me, one of the key ones is an energy bias. 
Mm. I am like frenetic in my energy. Like it is just the way I am. And when I go into an interview with someone, yeah, can you believe it? When I go into an interview with someone who resonates on like a different energy plane, it's really easy for me to be like, oh, yeah, they don't have what it takes. That is categorically absolutely not true. Or they don't, they don't care. They don't because care. Because they're not they're as not amped as I am. They're not as amped as I, whatever it is. Like yeah. I could draw those conclusions and I have to work incredibly, not incredibly hard now that I'm aware of it. It's actually pretty easy to go into that meeting and be like, okay, I'm going to change my level. We're going to talk at a different place. And then to me, it always comes down to listening really well Mm -hmm. Um, because it's the words that matter, not the external perceptions as much. And then how do you think about inclusivity? So once you've got people in the door making it safe and welcoming and equal place for folks? Really good question. Um, I don't have any smart answers on that one, honestly. (laughs) I think we're still at the phase where we are there's 30 people in our office. And so you invite everyone to lunch. You do the basics of like going to drinks and never making it an exclusive event. You be a genuine human and you look for people who are going through something, maybe having a rough day, and you just take that human element of, you might not be on my team, but let me ask if you're okay. Let me offer you free for coffee. But at 30 people, that's a really different thing than at Mm -hmm. 150 or 500 people. And I know that from my experience at HubSpot and having watched that happen, but I haven't gone through that in the position I'm in now where it's something that I'm focusing on trying to change or or affect. Um, So it's one I I look forward to learning. (laughs) Yeah. How do you and the team in general think about the company's obviously scaling? Mm -hmm. uh, And based on your experience at HubSpot, you've, you've seen the changes that can come with that rapid expansion, both like in terms of like where people physically are, the kinds of roles they have, the kinds of metrics you're setting, the ability to be able to check in with different Mm -hmm. people. Uh, What are those conversations like as you look to the future? So I have a strong belief that every time your team doubles in size, everything breaks. The way you communicate, the way you work together, how people are organized, like where you sit, what your office plans are, like things just break every time you double. And again, at Owl, it was Rebecca and I early on, and then we added three more people, and then all of a sudden, like it didn't work anymore. And we had to be aware of that and flexible to make changes. And so as we talk about it as a team, we focus on you know, what's breaking now. Have we just leveled up in size? What are the things we need to focus on doing? And then looking to the future to try and Think about what might break next and Mm -hmm. can we get there to preemptively expect that and understand where we're going so that we don't actually feel the pain of that and can get there ahead of it. We are also an interesting company because we bring to the table two incredibly strong Boston cultures, uh, HubSpot and iRobot, and they're very different companies. And we have had to work really hard to build the OWL culture and not just become like one or the other of these. And so What were those two cultures? You know, it's harder for me to speak to the iRobot culture. Uh, I wasn't a part of that. Um, the HubSpot culture, though, is, you know, extreme transparency, like lots of focus on metrics. Uh, you know, there's a whole book about the HubSpot culture. But bringing those things in, we don't want to just replicate that. We mm-hmm. want to be our own thing. And this is another way in which diversity is really important. We talk about not hiring more HubSpot people. I love HubSpot people. They have great backgrounds. Oh, I understand really them. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But I need diversity of experience and thought. And that comes from where you worked in the past. You know, in an early stage startup, it's really easy to hire your network and who you know. And we have to work really hard to not hire more HubSpot and not hire more iRobot, but to hire people with different experiences. 
So what's next for OWL? Can you uh, let us in on, on anything that's coming up in the near future? The next year for OWL is going to be really exciting. And uh, I probably say that every year, but I do believe <laughs> it. Um, we have just released the second product, which is great. And now we're focusing on kind of a lot of those software solutions and a lot of solutions that tie into the two core products we have. It's going to be a great year of kind of product delivery and discovery as we continue to work through all of that and get more, more features and more products and benefits into our customers' hands. We're also going to grow and make the OWL available in a broadening range of places, both sales channels and countries. So international expansion is going to be really interesting and exciting. It's amazing how OWLs fly. We have OWLs in like 70% of the countries in the world, but we only sell in the United States, Canada, and the UK. Wow. Uh, and so it's amazing. I, there is not one in Antarctica yet. It's the only continent we're left to have. So if anyone's listening from Antarctica and wants an OWL, I'm happy to send you one. I feel like that would be helpful there. I'm totally. sure they have remote meetings. Totally helpful. I just don't know enough people in Antarctica to send one or how to even send a physical device to Antarctica. But it's on my wish list. So getting owls more broadly around the world and into just lots of different types of companies. Cool. And what about for you? Does the move to CRO change your responsibilities? It changes it and then it gets a little bit broader. I uh, now am responsible for sales, marketing, customer success, and business operations. But I have a great team. And so really, like, we've all been working really well together. And this uh, makes me a ringable neck, which is exciting. <laughs> um, exciting. <but> it's, <laughs> yeah, you got to look at these things with positivity, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'm working right now and kind of bringing marketing and sales a little bit closer together. So we're working in alignment, you know, more than in silos. And so that'll be really interesting and exciting as we head towards the future. Cool. So if people want to follow along with either you or with Owl Labs, what's the best way to do that? You can follow me on Twitter at Karen Rubin, or you can follow Owl Labs at Owl Labs. Karen, thanks so much for coming in. I had so much fun talking to you today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, let's build something great together.